Hey, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, I know if you're new or if you're an introvert, that's a really awkward time for you, but we think it's really important that we connect in community here at Genesis Church, so thanks for doing that. Uh, again, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so you guys didn't get to go anywhere for fall break either, huh? Yeah. Uh, hopefully, maybe someday. Maybe we'll get to go somewhat someday. Hey, um, I have had over the past couple of years, uh, unfortunately, especially over the past two years, I had the opportunity to do probably more than my fair share of funerals. And when, we, when I do, I always get, the question comes up in me and often in a lot of people who attend the funeral, like, do you ever think about what's going to happen at the end of your life? You ever think about that? I'm not trying to be morbid or anything. Happy Sunday, everybody. I'm glad you're at church. But have you ever thought about what happens at the end of your life? Like what kind of legacy that you're going to live? Because as we get older, as we start to have kids, or maybe some of you have had grandkids, you start to think about your legacy, right? What will you leave behind for the generations? And I'm not just talking about the things that you'll leave behind. I'm talking about your legacy that's built, sure, through your actions, but also through your words. And uh, I was doing some research this week, and I found out that there are some pretty famous people that have had some pretty famous last words that they left with the world uh, that had a real impact. I want to share a couple of those with you. You may know, for instance, that the world-famous futurist, Nostradamus, his last words were, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And he was right, again, about that too. So that was pretty cool. Leonardo da Vinci was more modest on his deathbed. His last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Can you imagine that from the guy who painted the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper? Uh, to thinks he's offended God. Uh, you may know the second U.S. president, John Adams, had a lifelong rivalry with the third U.S. president, Thomas Jefferson. And Adams died on July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence to the day. And his last words in the, when he died were, alas, Jefferson survives. But what he didn't know was that Thomas Jefferson had died a couple hours earlier the same day. They both died on the 4th of July. Can you imagine that? In 1826, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. That's amazing. My, my favorite, though, probably is comedian and actor Charlie Chaplin, who, as he was being read his last rites by a priest, the priest ended with, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. And Chaplin replied, why not? It belongs to him anyway. Love that. But I think no last words have had the lasting impact and have changed the world quite like the last words of Jesus. And we find them in Acts chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, you might open it there or turn it on there, uh, Acts chapter 1. This year, we've been reading all the way through the Bible in this series that we've called Planted. And just as a reminder, if you haven't been around, that concept, that idea of planted comes from uh, Psalm 1 where the psalmist says that a person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. And so just as a reminder, we're reading through scripture this year, not just to get all the way through the Bible. We're doing it because that's our hope, that we want to be a people, a church that delights in the law of the Lord, that individuals and, and as a church that we would, we would prosper, that we would be able to withstand the storms and the wind and the, and the droughts of life. And so over the past five weeks, we've looked at the four gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, 
John and then Luke. Uh, We've done it in that order, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But the four accounts capture, the four accounts of Jesus' life, and they captured the end of Jesus' life in much the same way. Uh, They record that he is betrayed by Judas, one of his followers, that he is turned over to the ruling authorities to be tried, and he is beaten and mocked and spat upon and eventually nailed to a cross where he is left to die. And Jesus was buried in a tomb on a Friday night, and on Saturday, he uh, lay there all day long in a tomb that was guarded by uh, Roman soldiers so that they could know that the followers wouldn't come steal his body. And then on Sunday morning, some of his followers go down to the tomb to embalm his body, and they find it's not there, that he's not there, that slowly they start to realize what had happened, that this death and resurrection that Jesus had talked about while he was on earth, while he's walking the earth, wasn't just a story, that it had really happened. And and what we start to see as the book of of Acts uh, begins is that this resurrection, this one event has sparked a change in his followers. Uh, And we see that, I think, most clearly in Acts chapter 4 when Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, you remember Peter, right? Peter's the one that on the night that Jesus was arrested and on trial, Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. He denied even knowing him. And so on that night, he pretends he doesn't even know him. And then by Acts chapter 4, we see Peter standing up in front of uh, the ruling authorities, the same men who killed Jesus, and declaring that salvation is found in no one else. What a change it made in his character, but we'll get there, okay? But first, I want to go over these last words of Jesus. Um, The rulers and elders, though, when they hear that from Peter, they come to this conclusion. They say this, and I I love this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, so I had to include it. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But again, we'll get there, but I want to talk about these famous last words because when I was finding my way to God, back to God, I had a question. And maybe you have this question too, and it's this. How do we even know so much about Jesus? Like, how do we know so much about this Jewish carpenter from a backwoods town in Palestine, a distant outpost of the Roman Empire? How do we know so much more about Jesus than we know about any of the Roman emperors, including Julius Caesar, who had a play written about him. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I think we need to give a lot of credit to the eyewitnesses, the men and women who saw these events unfold. See, we can sometimes think of stories in the Bible as having been handed down from generation to generation through an oral tradition until eventually they were written down. And that's true, especially in in the Old Testament. But in this book that we're reading now in Acts, Uh, And in Luke, what we hear, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Luke is talking to eyewitnesses, men and women who were there. These people were actually at these events. They they saw the stories. They're providing this account to Luke. They they didn't hear about these things. They actually experienced them. They were there for them. They they saw Jesus walking around uh, alive after they saw him dead. And it influenced how they lived and where they went and what they did. Well, the, uh, the book of Acts, which we're reading right now, is basically Luke part two. It's a second part of a two-act volume that we might call Luke-Acts. And uh, he, uh, we know that Luke wrote this for his friend Theophilus. Um, he said that he wanted to get, give an orderly account of what had happened, and here's how he starts Acts chapter one, his volume two. He says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You can almost hear Luke, the physician. Remember, Luke was a physician. And I've never been a doctor. I've not even played one on TV. Um, But I don't know a whole lot about a doctor's work. But I would imagine that one of the most important things a doctor can do is be able to tell someone who's alive from someone who's dead. It seems pretty simple, but I think you ought to be able to do that if you're a doctor. And you can almost hear in Luke's voice as he's writing this, this, look, I know this is crazy, okay? And I didn't think I could believe it either, but I've talked to all these people, all these eyewitnesses that were there. They saw him. They saw him dead, and then they saw him alive, and he walked around, and he gave all these proofs that he was alive again. And then Luke goes on to capture these last words. And they're found in Acts 1.8. And this is going to be my main passage for this morning. It says this, Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he tells them this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, one thing to note about this is Jesus is the only one I know and maybe the only person in all of history to give his last words after he died. (laughs) Okay, most of us, when we give our last words, it's going to be before we die. But in Jesus's case, he died. He was raised from the dead. He walked around for 40 days, and then he gives his last words. And they're so important that I want to look at them again. I want to highlight a couple things for you. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the Holy Spirit is something that Jesus had talked about before with his disciples, but I don't think they really understood what that meant. What kind of power is he talking about? Like, what what is he saying? They're going to find that out soon. A witness. He said, you will be my witnesses. A witness is someone who sees something and then says something, right? Goes and tells somebody, hey, here's what happened. Here's what I saw. He says to his followers, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, that's the city they're living in, okay? In all Judea, so that's the surrounding area. So think of it kind of like a state. It's like a region uh, in Jerusalem and then in Judea. And then in Samaria, Samaria is the next region to the north and to the ends of the earth. And then right after that happened, Jesus is taken up to heaven right before their eyes. And this, again, this happened in front of many witnesses, witnesses who saw this, witnesses to whom Luke spoke as he was writing this down. And the whole rest of the book, the whole rest of Acts, is about his followers fulfilling and obeying Jesus' last words. They're overcome by the Holy Spirit in uh, Acts chapter 2, and they receive that power that Jesus had promised. And then they head out first into Jerusalem, and then over time, they go out into the surrounding areas as they're persecuted. They go out into all of Judea, and they're telling that story of what Jesus taught, what he said, what he accomplished during his life, and how he was raised from the dead. And for these witnesses, this news of Jesus's death and resurrection wasn't just a teaching passed down to them. Again, this happened on their watch in their backyard, and many of them were eyewitnesses, and they saw it happen, and they saw him die that painful death on the cross, and then they spent time with him after he was raised from the dead. And many of them stood on the Mount of Olives as he ascended into heaven. And because of what they saw, And because of the Holy Spirit and that power living inside of them, they were prepared to go to Jerusalem and to the surrounding cities and spread the good news of Jesus. 
And so in Acts chapter 2, we see Peter, one of those eyewitnesses, and he gives the very first message to these witnesses, right? He gives the very first church service, and 3,000 people surrender their lives to Christ. 3,000 people are added, and the church is born, and it was born as a movement. There were no buildings, and there were no programs, there were no campuses, no youth groups, but that doesn't stop them. They, they go into the surrounding area, and they're so on fire for Jesus and his message that they go throughout Jerusalem, and they meet together every day. They get together in the temple courts, and they start telling the people over and over again about what Jesus has done. And they're healing people, and they're helping people, and they're gaining momentum. People are being added to their number daily, and the very same people who wanted Jesus put to death start to take notice. And so by Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are in jail. And they'd been speaking to a large crowd of people near the temple, and they were being so bold as to say that Jesus was the only way. That Jesus was the only way to salvation, and they were arrested. And the next day, they appeared before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was uh, the ruling authority in Jerusalem. It was their job to keep order. And so these were important guys. You didn't mess with these guys. And Peter and John come before them, and somebody from the high court, from the Sanhedrin, yells out this question, like, why are you teaching these things? Who, who gives you the right? By what authority are you teaching this? And so Peter does what every good preacher would do in that situation. He passes the offering plate. No, that's not what he did. He didn't pass the offering plate. He preached a sermon. He, got, he stood up and, he, and he, he talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he says something that just bugs the heck out of these guys. He says this in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He says, there is no other name by which we can be saved other than the guy that you killed. That's kind of narrow, isn't it? It's only one way to salvation. I mean, after all, aren't we all children of God? Isn't it words like that that cause people to stand opposed to Christianity? See, this is what Peter knew. This is what he'd experienced. After all, he was a witness. He had seen what Jesus was capable of with his own eyes. And you know what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have too. And maybe you didn't see Jesus walking the earth and watch him perform miracles uh, in his human form. But if you're a Christian, you've seen Jesus do some amazing things in your life. You've seen him change your life. You've seen him change your heart. You've seen him change your patience. You've seen him change your language. You've seen him change your priorities. You know, you know in your heart of hearts that all religions are not the same, that not all faiths worship the same God. And while in today's world that seems extremely narrow-minded and not at all politically correct, you know it to be true because you've experienced it. You've seen it in your life. And so today, some people may want us to tone down that message, but we won't. We won't compromise. We won't won't compromise on that truth. I believe at Genesis, we believe that there is only one name by which we can be saved, no one else, that only Jesus lived a sinless life, that only Jesus went to the cross and died an atoning death, a death that we deserve, that only Jesus was raised from the dead by his heavenly Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, that only Jesus appeared to his followers after the resurrection, and only Jesus gave them this instruction that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Peter heard this, and he had the courage to speak his heart. And while the men of the Sanhedrin didn't believe his message, they couldn't change his mind. And they didn't want any trouble from this crowd that was gathering and growing. And so 
they warned him to stop. I don't want to hear you preaching that name again. And then they sent him away. And then what happened next is fascinating. And it's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning because what happened next is the disciples went away and prayed. That's not unusual. They, they got this habit passed down from Jesus. They always watch Jesus go away to lonely places and pray. And so the disciples have carried this on, this tradition of going away and praying. But what they prayed is what I want to emphasize to you. Look at this in Acts 4.29. They're praying and they say this. They pray, now, Lord, consider their threats. Those people that killed Jesus are now threatening his disciples, okay? Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Boldness? <laughs> really, that's what you're going to pray for. You're going to pray for boldness. I mean, isn't boldness what got them into this mess in the first place? I, I think they've got the boldness thing down, don't you? I mean, isn't boldness what landed Peter and John in jail? But I wonder, have you ever prayed for boldness? Boldness to share God's word with great boldness? That's what they did. They, they get these threats from the men who killed Jesus, and it's only going to get worse. But they weren't going to tone it down. When faced with threats and opposition, these Christians, this church, prayed for boldness. Now, I didn't say weirdness, okay? Uh, there's a difference. I believe we as Christians are called to be bold, but we're not called to be weirdos or insensitive idiots. I mean, there, we could talk about a whole bunch of ways that in the name of boldness, Christians and churches have caused all kinds of problems, done all kinds of harm to the message of Jesus. But I'm talking about boldness as in courage. Boldness as in eagerness. Boldness as in passion. Boldness as in Jesus is coming back, and it might be today, and it might be tomorrow, or it might be years from now. But in the meantime, we're going to be bold at speaking his message. That's what I'm talking about. Do you, do you even think about how the message of Jesus made it to 2021? It's because of boldness. It's because these first followers, these first century Christians, prayed for boldness, and God honored that prayer. And the church just grew. The church grew. Think about this. We read in Scripture, Jesus had 12 apostles, 12 leaders in his ministry. One of those didn't work out so well. So we'll call it 11, okay? And then... Uh, right after his resurrection, there's 120 that gather together. So we go from 11 to 120. And then on that day of Pentecost, that first message that Peter preached, 3,000 are added to that number. So the church is starting to grow and it grows and gains momentum. And by 70 AD, the church has gained enough power that they're starting to get persecuted. The temple is burned down and uh, they have to scatter into the surrounding areas. So the message leaves Jerusalem and goes into the surrounding areas, into Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And many Christians are fleeing and doing that. It gets to the point where by 325 AD, so about 300, a little less than 300 years after Jesus died, uh, Emperor Constantine had convened the Council of Nicaea, which is a group of Christians that he got together to try to uh, iron out their differences. And by the fifth century, so by 400 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is the official Christ, uh, religion of the Roman Empire empire. You know, the, the people that put Jesus to death, it's their official religion 400 years later. But then something happened. Over time, the church got organized. It got buildings. And what started as a movement around this message, around this event, this resurrection of Jesus became a hierarchy. And people with wrong priorities took control. 
People in the church started leveraging religion in order to gain power and control over people. And when the wrong people with the wrong priorities get all kinds of power, bad things always happen. And in a matter of a few hundred years, this very outward-focused movement that was created to spread the good news of Jesus became an inward-focused organization. You know, every church goes through seasons as they age. That's only natural. But I heard someone once say that the gravitational pull of every church is to turn back inward. In other words, to forget about the thousands and thousands of people out there that need to hear about the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus, the same love and grace and forgiveness that you've experienced at some point in your life if you're a follower of his, that we forget about the thousands of people out there and we start focusing on the dozens or a couple hundred that are in here and want to do things the way that we want to do things. In other words, if churches are not intentional, we will take our eyes off the harvest field and start gazing at our navels. You know, I didn't grow up in church. Now, many of you know that story that uh, Christianity wasn't an important part of my life growing up. Uh, I didn't go to church for a long time. And then there were about three years when I was in middle school and my first year of high school that I found a church that I really loved. And then I didn't go to church for another long time after that. And I'll tell you why. Um, uh, I grew up with my dad. I went with my mom on weekends. My parents divorced when I was young. And uh, my mom found a church that she really liked for a couple of years. I was in middle school and I would go almost every weekend. She, uh, I got involved in student ministry and I got baptized there. Uh, my mom got really involved and she met a man at that church and he happened to be the lead pastor's brother. And they dated for a while and then they got married and like I said, I didn't live with my mom, so I didn't experience the whole story. But as I understand it, after a couple of years, he got a little violent with her, started getting abusive, and she left him and eventually filed for divorce. And because of that, the lead pastor asked her, and by extension me, to never come back to that church again. They were so interested in protecting what they had that they weren't able to enter into the brokenness and try to help the people who needed it. And I swore I would never set foot in a church again. Well, fortunately, God knew better. But many of you have stories like that. Maybe you went to a church where there was a fight and that fight caused a split. Maybe you had a problem and the church didn't know how to deal with it. And so you left. And for a long time, maybe you were without a church. Uh, maybe there was some misconduct, some hypocrisy, something else that drove you away. And it's only by God's grace that you're back here today. But can I tell you what? many people will never come back. Whether it's because of hurt from a prior church or abuse from a spiritual leader or a parent who tried to shove religion down, your, down their throat, uh, even in Indiana, even in the heart of the Bible Belt, there are people out there, people that you work with, people that you live next to, people that you go to school with, who will never, ever, ever set foot in a church on their own. We have to go get them. And how do we do that? Well, we have to be bold, right? We gotta be praying for boldness. But, but we can tend to shy away from that, especially when we hear these stories of these men and women who prayed for boldness, even in the face of threats to their lives. Like, how can we even measure up to that? How can we pray for boldness when our lives aren't at stake for sharing our stories most of the time, right? I mean, we don't have anything to deal with. How can we even measure up to what happened in scripture? And so I've been thinking about this this week and like, how could I challenge you? How could I challenge us as a church to be bold? And I thought there were a couple things I could do. There were a couple ways to approach this. One is I could tell you stories 
of people in other parts of the world where it's not safe to be a Christian. I could tell you about my friends who uh, have smuggled Bibles across the border into communist countries and they hide them in boxes under their suitcases in the trunk of their car, and they're standing at customs, and they're praying that the customs agents won't open the trunk or won't move their suitcases or won't open the boxes or that if they open the boxes, they won't understand what those books say. I can tell you about them and how they risked their lives to get God's word into these places where it would never, ever exist otherwise. Or I can tell you about other friends who uh, cross international borders into militaristic countries to build hospitals for people that the military government doesn't care enough about the people who are living there that are sick. And so my friends fly into one country and they sneak through the jungle at night and cross into another country and they build hospitals there. And their work is really important and is really great, but it has almost no impact on how we live our lives and what boldness looks like for us. And it's just so intimidating to think about that. They're, they're heroes and what they're doing is so important, but gosh, it doesn't really resonate with us because it doesn't look at all like our lives. And so I thought what I'd do is the second thing, which is let's take some boldness baby steps, okay? Uh, and you'll hear these and you may think, well, that's nothing compared to what the apostles had to do or the first church had to do, and you would be right, okay? But Let's be honest, for most of us, we are boldness babies. And so we need some boldness baby steps. We gotta start somewhere. Because when it comes to boldness, we're still babies. So here are three baby steps. Maybe if you're taking notes, you can write these down, uh, but they're gonna be on the screen here. Here's baby step number one. Boldness is saying something when it's easier to say nothing. Now, when it comes to saying something, I know some of you are very, very bold when it comes to talking about some things. I know because we're Facebook friends, okay? Um, but those aren't the things I'm talking about. Uh, quite honestly, for many of my friends, even here at Genesis, I know more about who you voted for than what you believe about Jesus. I know more about how some of you feel about masks than I know how you feel about prayer. And I know more about whether or not you've had a vaccine than whether or not you've been baptized. Look, I'm not trying to tell you the thing that you're passionate about doesn't matter. I know some of you are very active in government, you're in, in local causes and global causes, and I am too, and I'm not trying to Jesus-juke anyone, but I do wish we were bold, as bold about our faith in Christ as we are about our politics. I, I do wish that we collectively were known more for what we stand for than what we stand against. And so when I talk about saying something when it would be easier to say nothing, what I'm talking about is what the first church prayed for, which is boldness to preach the word of God, to speak about the word of God, boldness to share the story of what Jesus has done in your life, even if the person doesn't want to hear it. Several years ago, um, my wife and I attended a block party, and in our neighborhood at that time, a block party basically meant a kegger, okay? And so um, I don't know if you've ever seen a 40-year-old do a keg stand, but if you haven't, I can show you a neighborhood where it happens on the regular. Um, now, I don't have a problem with alcohol in moderation. It's just not a hobby for me, okay? I, I know some people, many of my friends, who when they get together with friends and alcohol, it turns into a frat party again. And I just want to say, dude, you're in your 40s. Like, it's time to grow up, you know? But we're at this party, and uh, my wife is there, my wonderful wife, and all the women at this party are gathered together. They're talking about their kids in school, and one of them asked Benita, how are your kids doing in school? And quite honestly, the year had been a little bit of a struggle for us. And so my wife started sharing about this issue that we were having with the school, and then she started talking about what God is teaching her through that. 
and how God has been working in her heart and changing her heart. And, and uh, she tells this long story about God's faithfulness in this whole thing. And there's dead silence when she's done for about five seconds until one of the women goes, okay, who wants another margarita? <laughs> See, it's not always going to go how you think it's going to go. But that's why it takes boldness. Being bold is saying something when it's easier to say nothing. We should all have a message that we're ready to share when somebody asks. But baby step number two is this. Boldness is praying with someone instead of saying you'll pray for them. I had somebody challenge me with this one time. They said, what would happen if next time somebody asked you to pray for them, you stopped what you were doing and prayed right then? And so somebody challenged me with that. And the very next day, when you know it, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. I was on my way to work. It was before I worked in the church. I was in the corporate world. And my friend called, and he called because he had a big client meeting that day. And he said, Steve, I was hoping you would pray for me. And so I'm driving to work, and I said, you know what? Let's pray right now. And so I stopped, and it kind of caught him off guard, but I said, let's, let's just do it right now. And so I, I was driving. I kept my eyes open, obviously, but I was praying with him. I prayed out loud with him on the phone as we drove to work, and he called me up later that day, and he told me about how that meeting went, and he said, the whole time I was in that meeting, I kept thinking about your prayers for me, and I kept thinking about that time that we, you were able to pray with me on the phone. It meant so much to me. You know, when you pray for somebody, you get the opportunity to stand between them and God. You stand in the gap for them. You intercede. That's what that means. You intercede for them. And I just want to challenge you this week, this week to pray for someone on the spot. If somebody says, hey, I need your prayers. I got this thing coming up. What if you stopped right there and said, hey, you know what? Let's pray right there. If you're comfortable, what if you laid your hand on them? That's bold, right? That's bold. That's a boldness baby step. Pray for somebody. You might be surprised. You have no idea what your humility or what your prayers might mean for somebody. That's boldness. The third baby step is this. Boldness is taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. What would it look like to intentionally place yourselves in yourself in a situation where you know there are non-Christians present and then praying to God to send you an opportunity to tell your story. A few years ago, I was at a race out of town, a running race um, with some friends. I, I, made it my, my point, I made it a point to travel with some friends of mine that weren't Christians a couple of times a year and go to these races out of town so that I'd get some quality windshield time with them. Um, that was one of the ways that I was investing in people who weren't followers of Jesus. And so we were in Wisconsin at this race. It was the night before the race was going to start. And uh, a friend of a friend, somebody I really hadn't spent any time with at all, didn't really know him at all. He said, hey, I've got to go to the store and get a couple things for the race. Does anybody want to go with me? Well, all of my friends were busy preparing for their frat party. And so um, I said, yeah, I'll go. I raised my hand. I didn't know him. And uh, in the 15-minute car ride to the store, I just asked him a couple questions. Tell me about your work. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your family. And in that time, he unpacked for me a five-year struggle that he and his wife had had with infertility and how they used to pray, but they stopped praying because it wasn't doing any good. And they spent five years trying to have a baby. And finally, after five years that they had a baby boy, and this baby boy was the love of his life, and it meant everything to him. And by the time we pulled into that Walmart parking lot, he was crying ugly tears. This grown man was bawling like a baby. And he was telling me about his son and how much he loved him. And I got the opportunity to share with him. He said, you know what? The Bible says that, that children are a gift from God. I believe that your son is a gift from God to you. And I said, and when you look at your son, that way you feel about him, how much love you have for him, that's the same way that God feels about you when he looks at you. 
And I was able to share that with him. Now, did he come to Christ right there on the spot? No, I wish he would have. He didn't. And, and to my knowledge, he still hasn't. But I, God sent me an opportunity and I took advantage of it. And I hope and I pray even to this day that other people are taking advantage of, of opportunities with him. And someday I hope he'll have a seat in heaven. Look, it's time for pray, pray for boldness. It's time that we take steps outside our comfort zones and find our ways into situations and conversations where we are desperate for God to show up and work on our behalf. I mean, look at it this way. If you're a Christian and you're here today, aren't you glad that somebody was bold with you? Aren't you glad that somebody took the chance to share their story or prayed for you or invited you to church? Why did that happen? Because they were bold. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you probably listen to this and thinking, see, Boldness is exactly why I don't like Christians. Like, why can't you just enjoy your faith and keep it to yourself? Well, I've got good news for you. Most of us do. You probably have Christians living all around you and you don't know it because they're secret Christians. Shh. And friends, we don't have time for secret Christians. Honestly, it doesn't fit with what Jesus has called us to do as his followers and his church. I mean, that's why at Genesis, I'm grateful that you're committed to and ready to take whatever steps are necessary to help people find their way back to God. And so if you're struggling with that boldness, just remember these last words of Jesus. I'm gonna read these one more time. And as we do, I want you to close your eyes and just imagine you're on that mountain, meeting face-to-face with Jesus. And you know, this is the last thing he's ever gonna say to you. Just close your eyes for a moment. Picture Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives. And he looks at you and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When you hear those words, do they mean anything to you? Like, does it stir something inside of you? Do the last words of Jesus affect your life in any way? The very fact that you received power, that the same power, that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's living inside of you. That power is yours. And so many of us, we put that power in a box on a shelf in our closet and we never, ever take it down. That power is available to you. Does the call to be his witness, does that mean anything to you? In other words, is your life any different because Jesus gave you that command that you will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth? Let's pray together. And as we pray, I wanna pray for great boldness. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your Holy Spirit and the power that he gives us to be bold and to go share your name. And Lord, I I repent for the time It's times that I have not been bold when I should have been bold, when I've not said something because it was easier to say nothing, when I've not prayed for people on the spot. Instead, I'm saying, I'll pray for you and then forgotten or got busy and didn't make that prayer. Lord, I'm I'm sorry for the times where you've sent opportunities my way and you've teed it up and I have let it go. But Lord, we wanna be bold. As individuals, as a church, we wanna be bold in sharing your message. We know that there are people out there that are, destined for hell if they don't come to know you. And so God, we want to be bold in that. We want to share, your, share our faith with others around us. So would you give us boldness this week? Would you help us to take at least one of these boldness baby steps, even this week, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our school, wherever you have us, Lord. 
We want to be good to those last words of Jesus. We want to take that power that you promise us and go be your witnesses even to the ends of the earth. We pray for great boldness in Jesus' name. Amen.